Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, as we continue our study of the book of Matthew this morning. Before we dive into Matthew, I want to mention a couple of items. Chris mentioned some of this earlier, but of course, you know that we are headed into Easter. Next Sunday is the great celebration of Christ's resurrection. So over the course of the next week, there are a couple of things I want to mention. First of all, somebody asked this morning, do we have a Good Friday service? Yes, we do. It's going to be at our Southwood campus this Friday at 7 o'clock. It's going to be, it's called Reflections on the Cross. It's going to be an opportunity for us to remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Uh, I want to mention there will be no child care, and uh, it's probably not the best service, honestly, for very small children. So if you've got kids that are younger than kindergarten or first grade, this may not be the service for them. Older kids can come, but it is going to be a relatively solemn, quiet service, and I understand there will also be hammers and nails involved, and so uh, if you have small kids, you may not want to let them handle those items. So next Sunday, obviously, is Easter as well, and uh, Chris mentioned we'll have one service at 9.15 with a potluck to follow. You can bring a, you know, one item if it's cold or hot. I think we have ways that we can keep it cold or hot for the course of the hour. Uh, We'd love to have everybody here. There will be childcare for zero to five, but not for elementary and up. Bring those kids into the room with you. We would love to have them here. A little bit of noise and chaos on Easter Sunday is not a bad thing. It's not going to throw us off, so bring them in here. And also, we want to encourage you, over the course of the next week, be thinking of friends, neighbors, relatives, those that you can invite who may not be connected to a church, Uh, who may need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, be praying today that there's somebody that you can bring to hear the gospel of Jesus. Uh, One other thing I'll mention too, you you may have noticed around the walls this morning, or the curtains more accurately, uh, we have artwork. Uh, These are uh, reflections on the cross. There are 12 of these images. Uh, Between services this morning, if you want to walk through and take these in, these are meant to focus our hearts and minds on Christ's sacrifice. There are papers on the tables over here that kind of walk you through these images. Uh, So grab one of those, maybe just one per family so we have enough for everybody, but we'd love for you to experience that this morning before you leave. All right, Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read the passage and then we'll pray together, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for the morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to worship you. As we gather to worship you this morning, we remember that not everywhere in the world are Christians allowed to gather or able to gather in peace. And so we particularly remember uh, those Egyptian Christians who faced violence on their own Palm Sunday service this morning. We pray for those affected. We pray for the families of those who 
died. And Father, we pray that we, in solidarity with them, would worship you this morning and pray that men and women in Egypt and across the world would turn to Jesus Christ and away from sin. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the call to love you and to love others. We thank you that that love is most perfectly expressed in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as we study your word this morning, you'd open up our minds that we would understand. Take away any distractions that we brought in here with us. Take away any confusion that would keep us from hearing what you have to say. Father, we pray, move in our hearts that we'd submit to you. Take away our desire to rebel against you and take away the fear that keeps us from following you. And then empower our hands and our feet and our lips for your service as we prepare to go from here by the power of your spirit in the precious name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. When I was seven years old, I started taking piano lessons. I was required to take piano lessons. It was an obligation uh, to live in the Morton household when I was growing up. Uh, And I enjoyed piano. In fact, I still play piano in my free time. I enjoyed playing. Uh, But I only took lessons for about five years. I quit when I was beginning junior high, right around seventh grade. And the reason is because I ran into a teacher that I didn't like at all. Uh, He and I did not get along to the point that every lesson became this battle for control. Uh, The problem began because he insisted that all I was allowed to play was classical music. Now, don't get me wrong, I like classical music. I loved playing classical music. I just also wanted to play some of the music that I wanted to play. I wanted to play some pop or rock or jazz, some other types of music. But he was a very traditional teacher. And he said, no, you you can only play these songs that are classical. Well, what that led to was uh, I didn't want to practice. Uh, Not because I didn't like the songs, but because I resented him. And so I punished him by deciding I wasn't going to learn how to play piano very well. So I would practice like 20 minutes one day a week when he wanted me to practice 45 minutes every day, uh, at least six days a week. And then I would go in for my lesson and he would harass me about the fact that I hadn't practiced enough. And he would sit behind me to go, you're playing too soft, too loud. You missed that note. You need to change your tempo. Everything's wrong, and it's wrong because you haven't practiced. And I began to yearn for the moment when that lesson would end, so I would check my watch. And he would say, don't look at your watch while I'm teaching. That's rude. Put your watch away. Right? And so these lessons became filled with turmoil because I had conflict with my teacher. And what I learned is that when we do not resonate with, care for, or like another person, we don't want to serve them or obey them. Right? I didn't want to obey his command to practice piano, not because I didn't like piano, but because I didn't like him. I had an aversion for him, and so I didn't want to play. So I quit lessons after a month or so of begging my mom every day, please let me quit. She finally let me quit. It was only later that I regretted quitting. Right, right. In contrast, I, I saw how uh, when my oldest daughter began piano lessons a number of years ago, her first teacher was somebody that she loved. And so she loved to play piano because her love for the teacher motivated her obedience to the teacher's commands. 
right? Love motivates obedience. That's going to be the foundational principle of the sermon this morning. Love motivates obedience. Uh, It works in human relationships. It works in our relationship with God. When we love God, we are more inclined to obey God. Right, and the inverse is also true. When we do not love God, we are not inclined to obey God. Most of us have grown up understanding on some level the commands of God. Right, Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, keep sex within the confines of marriage, be honest with one another, read the Bible, pray, share the gospel, all of these commands of God. And yet all too often we forget that at the heart of our relationship with God, it, God intends there to be love. And that's what we see in Matthew chapter 22 this morning. And Jesus is going to tell us that at the heart of all God's commands is this one central command to love God with all that is in you. Because the more we love God, the more obedience will be a joy rather than a chore. The deeper we know God and love Him, the more we will want to reflect His interests in the world. The more we will want to live out His character in the world, right? The more we love God, the more we're going to be motivated to obey. That's Matthew 22. Jesus says the greatest command, the the command on which all of the law and the prophets hangs is this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then he says the second command is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Why is the second command like it? Because both are united by love. When I love God and I know God loves me, then I begin to take on the characteristics of God because God loves the world. So I love others. Right, so love motivates obedience. Or another way to put it might be this. When we love God, we want to obey him. That's the foundation of our passage this morning. And I want us to ask ourselves this question. Are, are you and I, are we people who love God? Are we people who are cultivating a love for God? And is that love for God reflected in the way that we interact with others? Right? What would our lives be like? What would our families be like? What would our workplaces be like if we were men and women who cultivated a deep love of God and then that love flowed from us into all of our relationships? Would that transform the way we treat other people? Would that transform our desire? To share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would it transform our minds to say, because God so loved the world that he gave Jesus, I'm going to love my neighbor by serving my neighbor and telling them about Jesus. Are we people of love? Or has our love for God drifted into distance and coldness? Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. I read it a few moments ago. Let me explain a few concepts before we dive into some of our primary points this morning. All right, the the context of Matthew 22 is this, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, were asking Jesus a number of controversial questions about the law. All right, they're trying to trip Jesus up. 
right? And so the Sadducees had come and they'd asked Jesus a question about taxes, thinking they could trap him. But Jesus answers well. Then they ask him a question about marriage, thinking they can trap him. But Jesus answers well. And so the Sadducees, they they shut their mouths. They have no more questions for Jesus. And then the Pharisees come and they send a lawyer, an expert in the law of Moses, to ask Jesus what may be the most controversial question of all, which is, Jesus, what's the greatest command in the law? Now, this was a question that uh, rabbis debated about. Because if you think about it, there were hundreds of commands in the Old Testament law. I mean, hundreds. Later on, after Jesus' time, it was codified, the law was codified into 613 commands. And so, obviously, some of the commands are more significant than others. So we look at, for example, the command not to murder, and I think most of us would agree that the command not to murder is a greater command than the one not to wear clothing of mixed threads that we find in the Old Testament, right? So some commands clearly have uh, uh, worse consequences than others. Some are bigger than others. And so they debated, what was the the greatest command in the law? Is it about uh, sexual fidelity in marriage? Is Is it about murder? Is it about idolatry? In fact, many rabbis said the greatest command is don't make any idols because that is part of of what sent the people into exile. So they come to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest command, Jesus? And they know that no matter how he answers, he's going to disagree with somebody, right? It's like posting your politics on Facebook. You're going to make somebody mad, no matter what you say. And Jesus answers and he says, here's the greatest command. And he centers it on this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. And it's a brilliant answer because Jesus doesn't invalidate any of the commands of the law. He doesn't say, look, there are commands that you shouldn't follow. Instead, he says this. If you obey this one, you're going to want to obey all of the others as well. And from this one is going to flow the second command, to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commands, all of the law and the prophets hang. He says, if you become a person who loves God, you'll obey all the other commandments with joy. Because you'll recognize the purpose of God's law is that he wants to know you because he loves you. And so all of God's commands are rooted in love. Now, we want to look this morning at a few principles surrounding the great commandment. First of all, I want to talk about what does that mean? What does it mean to love God? What is the meaning of love at a basic level? And then why is love at the heart of God's law? And then, of course, last, we want to look at how do we do it? How can we become men and women of love? Right? Jesus would say to his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we'll close up this morning with that question. How do we become, how can we cultivate love for God? All right, but first I want to start here and ask this question. What is love? Now, if you're of a certain age, you hear that question, what is love? And immediately your mind thinks, baby, don't hurt me, right? And, and I realize that not everybody knows that song, uh, but that popular song from, I don't know, 20-something years ago, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. If you don't know the song, don't worry about it. That's basically all it says, right? For like four and a half minutes, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And I, I was thinking of, in fact, I read the lyrics this week just to see, is there any insight in this song about love? Uh, There's not, right? Uh, There is nothing in there that's going to help you understand the true nature of love. But I thought it was interesting because it does highlight one cultural perception 
about love, which is just don't hurt other people. And of course, the song is rooted, I assume, in sort of a a romantic love, right? So when we think about love, we think of a sort of affection, a fondness that says, I'm not going to hurt you, but I'm going to do what uh, is good for you, or at least I hope that you will do what is good for me, right? Don't hurt me, right? But when we look at the scripture, we see the concept of love being a whole lot broader than that. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God, he's using a Greek word, agapao, the the noun would be agape, most of you are familiar with that word, and and it's the word that is used most often in the New Testament when we we see love, right? It's used, uh, I think the verb is used like 141 times or something like that, and then the noun is used well over 100 times as well. What's interesting about agape is this. Uh, It was not used broadly in the Greek world outside of the New Testament, right? In the Greek world, they had a number of words for love. They had eros, which was a sexual type of romantic love. They had phileo, which was this brotherly affection. And then they had agape, which was kind of a general word for love. And what happened was the New Testament writers said, you know what? We need a word that will uniquely describe the love between us and God and God and us and the love between Christians. And so they took this word agape that wasn't used a whole lot and they infused it with meaning. So they use it over and over and over and over to help us understand the love of God. So, of course, some of the most famous passages where we see agape are passages like John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that is, God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Right? So we get a hint that God's love is not merely an emotional affection for us, although it includes that. But it is a devotion that results in an action. God loves us, so he gave us his son. John chapter 13, greater love, agape, has no one than this, that he do what? He lay down his life for his friends. Right? This is deeper than mere phileo, deeper than brotherly, friendly affection. This is a devotion, a heartfelt devotion that leads to a willing self-sacrifice. That's how we see agape defined throughout the New Testament. It's this heartfelt devotion, meaning, yes, certainly there is an emotional component to it, right? Love is not cold or robotic. In fact, Jesus will say, you love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, that is the seat of your affections, all your soul. This word soul is a a word that really carries the idea of my entire life, all of me, and all your mind, your thinker. You love God with your emotions, with your thoughts, with your body, with every part of you. You love God. It's a heartfelt devotion that leads to a willing self-sacrifice, right? When we love somebody, we are often willing to sacrifice our time, our energy. We are often willing to sacrifice things that we would want to do in order to please the other person, right? So love would say this, I want to know you and I want to please you. And I'd go further to say, I'm willing to sacrifice what I want to know you and please you, right? Many of you who are married, you understand this concept because at times, because of your love for your spouse, you have set aside things that you would want to do because you love that person, 
Right, so I have more than once watched the five-hour BBC version of Pride and Prejudice because I love my wife. And I'll be honest, I, I kind of like it now, right? I, I, I've watched it enough that, that I enjoy it. In fact, a few years ago, there was a shorter two-hour version that came out, an American version, and it's not nearly as good. I prefer the long one with Colin Firth. Right, but, but before I was married, I never watched it. I never considered watching it. I never said to my roommates, boys, we got an extra Saturday. We're watching Pride and Prejudice. Let's do this. Right, and, and most of you in your relationships with others at times have set aside what you would want to do because of your love for the other person. Parents, this is why you play Candyland. No grown-up likes Candyland, but you play it out of love. And in fact, what's interesting is the degree to which you focus on your love for your children while you're playing it is typically the degree to which you will enjoy the game, right? When I'm focused on this is an intrusion into my time that I'd rather be doing something else, and by the way, I hate Candyland, it becomes torture, doesn't it? When we fill our minds and hearts with love, then we are willingly and joyfully able to set aside our rights on behalf of the other person. As I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking, here's the the way that I would frame it. I've done dozens of weddings as a pastor in my time as a pastor. Talked with, with all of the grooms, all of the brides, and I have never, ever once heard a groom complain to me about how much he spent on the honeymoon. Not once. Why? Because his love for his bride makes the money he spent feel like an investment well spent. That he gets time to know her, yes, physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. In every way, he gets time away from everyone else to know and love his bride. Never once have I had a groom say, I wish I had spent less. I wish I could have that money back. I've had people say it to me when they've been broken up with. I wish I could have that money back. Right, But I've never heard a groom complain about the money he spent on the honeymoon because when we love... We sacrifice willingly. That's the concept of agape. And so Jesus says, at the heart of the law is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Because the more I know and love God, the more I'll want to obey. The more I know and love God, the deeper I will understand that all of God's laws are designed because he loves me. Everything God does is rooted in love for his world and his people. And so as I love God, as I grow in love for God, I will want to obey. And that obedience will then manifest itself in love for others because God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. He gave his only son. That was the grounds of the gospel. God loves us. So Jesus says, the first and foremost commandment, love God. And the second is like it, love others. 
Love is a heartfelt devotion that leads to a willing self-sacrifice. So then why is love at the heart of God's law? We've, we've hinted at it. But as you look at the Old Testament law, what you see is that the point of the law was actually to give Israel a way to know and understand God's character. Paul, in fact, in Romans 7 says this, the law itself is actually good and holy. Uh, on this side of the cross, we are tempted to think of the law as something onerous or bad. Right? The, the Jewish people didn't think of it that way. Instead, they thought, how blessed are we that God has chosen us and revealed himself to us and allowed us to know him. Right? The problem with the law was not the law. The problem was not God's law. The problem with the law was the people, like you and me, who were unable to obey the law that God had given. Right? And so the law began to degenerate in their practice into sort of ritualistic legalism where they said, we know our hearts are broken. Even if they didn't admit it, they recognized their hearts were broken. They said, we, we, we don't know how to have a heart that loves God. So what we'll do is we'll develop hundreds of little commands attached to the law. And if we can keep all of these little commands, then we can please God in a sort of transactional relationship apart from love. And so the law degenerated into legalism. Right? But Jesus says, look, all of the law and the prophets, they hang on, literally, they hang on love. The image you might imagine is like the two hinges of a door. If that door is all of the law, love for God and love for others are the hinges that hold it up. Without love for God, without love for others, the whole structure collapses. And that's what was happening in Jesus' day, particularly through the Pharisees who placed burdens on people's shoulders that they had to meet, they had to carry, but they had no love for them. Because they had forgotten that the whole point of the law was to love God and then to love others. That was the purpose. I uh, was thinking in, in this vein this week about uh, the game, the sport of football. Now, I was never a football player. I realize that may surprise you uh, looking at me. But I never was. Uh, but I know enough about the game, right? I've watched enough of the game to understand that at its heart, the goal is you got to score more points, right? That's what you want to do, either through touchdowns or field goals or whatever. Uh, some of you will remember John Madden, the famous NFL commentator. He was famous for saying extremely obvious things at times. Uh, like this one, here's a guy who when he runs, he moves faster, right? That's true of everybody, right? Uh, the defense should be expecting a run or a pass here, okay? Again, good strategy. Uh, but my favorite one was this. Usually the team that scores the most points wins the game. And I love that, first of all, for the word usually. Like, are there exceptions? <laughs> Always, right? The team that scores the most points wins the game. And, and we laugh because why? It's so fundamentally obvious that everything you're trying to do, all of the practice, all of the exercises, all of the drills, all of the blocking, everything you're doing is, is rooted in that one goal, right? I want to score more points and win the game. Every sport is like that. But it, it could be, I suppose, easy to get sidetracked Right, to, to, to drill in on one skill to the exclusion of the broader goal. 
I know as a musician that could happen, right? People will drill in on one skill and forget about the whole song or forget about the whole band and you lose the big picture. Jesus says this is the danger we face when we look at the law is to lose the big picture that the law was designed for one end that you and I could know God and love God because God loves us. And so love is at the heart of the law because God designed it so we can know him through his word. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are usually considered to be sort of the foundation of the Old Testament law. Many people uh, believe that really everything after the Ten Commandments is just an exposition on the Ten Commandments. That's what most of the law is. It's interesting, when you look at the Ten Commandments, they are divided into two sections. The first section is rooted in love for God. Look at the first four of the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods. Make no idols. Don't take God's name in vain. And honor the Sabbath, right? Why don't you make idols? Because you love God as the only God. Why don't you take God's name in vain? Why don't we use God's name lightly? Because we love God and we reverence his name. Why do we honor the Sabbath? Because we love and trust God. And we spend a day devoted to God. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments are rooted in love for others. Honor your parents. Don't murder Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Four central commands rooted in love of God. Six commands rooted in love for our neighbor. So Jesus says at the heart of the law is this. You love God and you love others. All of the commandments hang on love for God. So think for just a moment about one of Jesus' commands to the church then. The Great Commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I command you. He says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a command to share the gospel and make disciples. And yet, if you're like me, all too often, that's a hard thing to do because I fear rejection. I fear embarrassment. I fear all kinds of consequences if I share about Jesus in a context where someone doesn't want to hear about Jesus. But you know what's interesting is I found this. I've never had much of a problem talking to my children about the gospel. Why is that? Well, you you could say maybe it's because I have a different relationship with them, right? I have a relationship of authority, but I think there's something deeper at the root of that, and it is this, that there's no question that the depth of my love for my children drives me to tell them about what's most important to my life. Because I know them and see them every day. I want them to live forever with Jesus. Often the reason I don't tell others, frankly, is because I lack that type of concern for the other people in my life. But what Jesus says is that the heart of God's commands is love. The more I love God and understand God's love for me, the more I will be empowered and motivated to obedience. If we love God 
will want to obey. Obedience does not feel as much of a chore the deeper we fall in love with God and his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, love hangs at the heart of the law. So then, of course, the last question for us to ask is this one. How do we become people of love? It's very difficult to look at a passage like this and not be deeply convicted that I'm not a person of love of God and love of others to the degree that I ought to be. How do we become people of love? How are we transformed? Let me offer a couple of thoughts. First one is this. We need a supernatural transformation. We need a change of the heart from the inside out. This was the problem as I mentioned earlier, with the law. The people of Israel had the law. They knew what God wanted. And in fact, Moses would say to the people on behalf of God, look, the law, it's not way up there in the heavens where you can't reach it. It's not way down in the depths of the earth where you've got to climb down to get it. It's pretty plain. It's pretty understandable. You know what God wants, and yet they didn't do it. And the reason they didn't do it, the reason they disobeyed, in fact, they disobeyed the first commandments the most often, have no other gods and don't make idols. Those were the first and most repeated offenses. They couldn't even keep the beginning of the Ten Commandments because like you and me, their hearts were sick. And they needed supernatural transformation by the power of the Spirit. In describing the relationship of the people to the law in the book of Galatians, Paul said, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here's what Paul is saying. Before we knew Jesus Christ, the law provided rules, right? It provided guidelines to say this is what God wants. But the problem, again, was we could not obey because our hearts were sick. We were, Paul says, like children who need rules and structure and discipline to obey because left to our own devices, we will do anything but obey. Those of you who are parents, you know that when your kids are small, they don't have an internal desire to obey, do they? They don't even have an understanding of what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. So you make rules, right? But one of the problems that every parent eventually runs up against is that that your kids think of ways to violate the spirit of the rules without actually violating the rules, don't they? They find things to do that are out of bounds that you never thought of. I'll never forget when my oldest daughter was maybe four or five, we were standing in line to get a hot dog at a hot dog stand. I think we were in Austin. And she wandered away for a minute. And I saw her kind of get down on the concrete. And then she came back. And when she came back, she said, look what I have, Daddy. And she was holding a dead grackle in her hands. And I, 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 it occurred to me right then of all the lessons we've taught her about washing your hands before you eat. We never included 
don't pick up a dead bird before you have a hot dog. Right? It never occurred to us. Interestingly, she at that moment was not trying to disobey, was she? There was just something in there, some sort of curiosity that said, I have to have that. And so she picked it up. When my younger brother was about the same age, I want to say three or four, somebody gave him a blue stamp of a little bird. And uh, anybody who has like a three-year-old boy already knows, very bad idea. Because David took that stamp and he stamped every surface in the house. The floors, the walls, the furniture, the kitchen counters, everywhere, little blue birds that had to be cleaned up. Now, common sense would tell you that's the wrong thing to do, right? My parents certainly had told us to treat the house with respect, but they had never specifically given us that command about stamping it with a little bird, But there's something in us that says, I want to see how far I can push the boundaries. And that was the problem with the nation of Israel, and it's the problem with you and me. And so Paul says, just as with children, we rope them in with rules. That's what the law was intended to do until the moment Jesus came and he died for all of our sin. He died in our place. He took our penalty for disobeying not only God's law, but God's very spirit and character. And then he rose again. And he defeated death and sin. And Paul says, once you've trusted in Jesus, not only do you have forgiveness of sin and eternal life, but here's what happens. Now the Spirit moves in and the Spirit turns us into spiritual grown-ups who have an internal barometer of what we ought to do to please God and what we ought not to do. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Paul would say, has set us free from the law of sin and death. God lives in those who know Jesus. We need a supernatural transformation. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning and you wonder, why can I not seem to overcome sin and the darkness of my heart? The scripture says because we need a supernatural transformation from the Spirit that only comes to those who believe in Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. We need a supernatural transformation. For those who know Jesus, God begins to effect a deeper transformation in our heart through the spiritual disciplines. What I mean by spiritual disciplines are just those practices of following and knowing God. We read the Bible, we pray, we invest our time and our energy in serving God and serving others. We give, we practice these disciplines, not because God is looking for some way to fill our time. He didn't give us the Bible just so we can pass the time until Jesus returns. It wasn't like read Leviticus, by the time you finish that, I'll be back, right? He gave us the scripture. So we can learn to love him. He gave us prayer. So we can learn to know and love him. And the more we cultivate these disciplines of knowing God. Through the power of the spirit. He begins to transform us. 
most of us, if we're honest, we struggle with spiritual discipline. We struggle with prayer. We struggle with reading the Scripture. And I think, I think often it is because uh, we see such immediate apparent benefit from so many other things we could be doing with our time and energy. And yet the Scripture tells us that a patient, day after day, week after week, year after year approach to pursuing God, that will work a transformation in our hearts where we deepen in our love for Him and then we deepen in our love for others. All right, it may be that you're, you're thinking, you know, but I just, I don't feel like praying. I can't get there. I don't feel like reading the Scripture. My encouragement to you is simply start somewhere. Start somewhere. Uh, I asked some Facebook friends this week, what are some things that you do to cultivate a love for God? And I got a variety of answers. Some people said, you know, if I don't feel like reading the scripture, sometimes it helps. And this is true of me as well. Turn on some worship songs that point my mind and heart to the greatness of God in Jesus Christ and begin to sing. Take a walk in nature. Spend time with people who remind me of God's love. Make a list of why I'm thankful to God for all he's given. Whatever it is that begins to spark in you a love for God starts somewhere. The question I would have as we close, how will you and I cultivate our love of God and love of others in our lives? I encourage you this week, find one practice that you may not currently be doing to deepen and cultivate your love of God for who he is and what he's done. And then through that love of God, begin to cultivate love of others. I do want to mention this summer, one opportunity we have to love our neighbors. Uh, We're doing something called Grace for the City in June, June 3rd through 10th. This is going to take the place, actually, of our Backyard Bible Clubs. Uh, If you did a Backyard Bible Club and you felt that that was a great opportunity to love and serve your neighbors, we will give you the curriculum. We aren't recruiting leaders for that and putting a structure in place, but you are welcome and we encourage you to do that. But we also wanted to broaden it this summer and say, let's think of ways rooted in our love for God to love our community. So there are going to be projects we can do, for example, at the public schools in the area, including this one. There are going to be a variety of ways for us to love our neighbors and our community. It's going to be June 3rd through 10th. We're going to have an intentional focus on that endeavor. We'll have more details coming. But first and foremost, we begin by saying, God, I want to know and love you change our hearts to be people who love God so that we can be people who love others in the way Jesus has called us to do. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it convicts and how it transforms. We thank you for your spirit that he lives in us because we know Jesus Christ. Father, make us people of love. We confess that we are, we are not, at least in our flesh, people of love for you or love for others. I pray we would cultivate that love through reading your word, through prayer, 
through giving, through every discipline you have provided. I pray we would obey you because we know you love us. Father, we are grateful for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.